It's Tuesday, April 13th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. Beating the moderator means I get to introduce the stars of the show, the Good Fellows, not to be confused with the Good Fellows, but the Good Fellows, three wise men who are going to share their insights uh, on viewer questions we're going to go through today. And let's meet the Good Fellows. First of all, uh, John Cochran. John is a distinguished economist, and he is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Our second good fellow, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor and the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill, John, and Neil. Lucky sharp, I might add. And our third good fellow, last but certainly never least, Neil Ferguson, distinguished historian and author and the Hoover Institution's Millbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Hi. Hey, Bill, I'm looking forward to this a lot. Re viewers' questions are just a great idea. Uh, who, and I think it was your idea, so I'm glad we're doing this. I think it's actually our producer Scott Immigrant's idea, but I will steal it nonetheless. Thank you, uh, Neil. So, gentlemen, on with the show. Last week, we asked our viewers to send in questions, and we were deluged with questions. Unfortunately, we're not to get to all of them, so let me apologize ahead of time to those of you who don't touch, but let me say two things. First of all, very smart, intelligent questions. You're looking at three PhDs who were very impressed by what you wrote, so thank you for your wisdom. Secondly, uh, those of you who actually told us how much you enjoy the show, how it's helped get through through the past year, that really means a lot to us too, because you do something like this, you don't know what impact it's making, so thank you very much for those kind sentiments. So with that, on with the show. Question number one, Mauricio from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Hola, Mauricio. As a graduating student who follows American and world politics daily, I have noticed that the corporate world has been implementing woke politics more and more. What can common sense people do to show corporations that this is something they should not engage in and that woke politics will actually harm them in the long run? Hey, I'll, I'll just jump in first. I, I, you know, I think the first thing you do is go back to what is the objective? What is, what is the objective of the corporation? Do they want to ensure equal opportunity for all employees? Do they want to make sure that employees are judged by their value to the organization, to the company? Do they want to ensure they're judged by the, the, the degree to which they earn respect because of their competence and because they treat others with respect? And I think that in, in many of these cases, you can either choose to get mired you know, into this interaction of critical race theory and bigotry and racism, or you can try to transcend it. So I think the first step in transcending is go back to what the objectives are. What, what is your vision for the corporation or the organization? Mm -hmm. Neil, John? Barry Weiss, who was our guest just the other day, launched recently the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, FAIR. My answer is go to FAIR and educate yourself about the racism of anti-racism and why it is toxic, not just on campus, but for your company. I'll add, um, speak out, tweet, uh, support institutions that are uh, like, like uh, FAIR, like FIRE, like you know, the Institute of Justice, like Hoover, like many others. Uh, support people who are in the Twitter mob. As, as we discussed last week, fear is the biggest thing going on here. It's a small minority uh, doing stuff, but um, people are scared to speak out. So you speak out and support others who are speaking out. Okay, uh, building on what Neil said about Barry Weiss, here's a question from Miley from New Jersey who asks, as discussed in your recent conversation with Barry Weiss, the universities and especially their social sciences departments have been co-opted by a multitude of postmodern critical theories and that newer reformed institutions need to be established. 
but let's ask the difficult question, how probable is this for some undergraduates or nameless adjunct to build a new university? I'll go first. It's perfectly possible. It's difficult to begin with an undergraduate program. That is, I think, an important caveat. And I think the new institutions that will come into existence, and I'm confident they will in the coming years, will start with graduate programs because we know it's much easier to establish those uh, from scratch. Uh, think of, for example, the success of the Schwarzman Scholars Program, which became competitive with the Rhodes Scholarships in just a matter of a few years. So I think it's going to happen. Uh, in fact, I'm aware of at least two new institutions that are ready at the drawing board stage. And uh, let's face it, that's in keeping with an American tradition. We used to found new institutions all the time, and then we stopped doing it. And surprise, surprise, the old ones got captured. And we're kind of like, oh, now what do we do? Well, the answer is do what we used to do. New institutions, and it's an extremely exciting prospect. I predict that these new institutions will flourish. But remember, they can't really start with undergraduate programs because the competition with the top brands uh, would be very hard to win. Start with graduate programs and go from there. Yeah, I'll just say that you know, after all this time with Neil and John, I might be starting to think like an economist, which I, I don't know if that's good or bad. But I, I do think that <laughs> I do I do think that that uh, that that there is a great demand. So I, I would just emphasize the demand side. I mean, I, I think that undergraduates, graduate students should automatically resist being fed any form of orthodoxy. So I, I think that that bodes well for the establishment of new educational institutions. Oh, I'd um, speak out again. It's possible to fix the ones we have. They are capable of reform. Um, <laughs> some of our listeners have some wealth. Uh, use your stature status as donor, as board of trustee, as influencer to demand that uh, stuff be fixed on the inside. And then we don't necessarily have to rebuild the entire institution. You can also start building around. There are now more and more centers that build around the rot of the humanities departments, but allow students access to the basics of good ideas. And uh, you know, if the new generation of college students can shut up and do what they're told to get their degree, but also access sensible ideas, then perhaps it won't spread from universities to the corporate and government world, which is a lot of the problem right now. Hey, I'll just highlight quickly the applied history initiatives, some of which uh, Neil's been involved with. I think that's an example, John, of what you're talking about. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Neil, want to add anything else? Yeah. Uh, applied history is flourishing uh, in multiple centers, not only in the U.S., uh, at Harvard, at the Belfer Center, uh, under the leadership of Graham Allison. Uh, our history working group here at Hoover is doing good work in that area. But there are also initiatives in, in England, at, uh, at Cambridge, uh, and in London, and in Sweden. And I'm in touch with the foundation in Germany, too. So we're busy building uh, a kind of alternative ecosystem for serious history of all kinds, particularly history that we can use to think about contemporary policy questions. My old uh, Harvard colleague, uh, James Hankins, just published an excellent essay pointing out what he calls the offshore structures that are flourishing. Uh, I think of Robbie George's uh, at Princeton. They're offshore in the sense that they're not entirely of the universities they're adjacent to, therefore they're not uh, likely to come under the direct control of those uh, university bureaucracies. Uh, but I think that's an exciting uh, development and a network of such institutions adjacent to but not under the control 
uh, of, say, Princeton or Harvard or Yale means that we have the bright prospect that maybe, just maybe, there'll be things like the Hoover Institution at other universities uh, taking on a more important and more concrete role. So I, I'm not despairing. I think we can innovate even adjacent to the established institutions, if not necessarily within them. And I would add there's the whole online thing, which threatens the fundamentals of universities, uh, which uh, is, a, is a way to... Um, to, to distribute ideas in an interesting new uh, organizational form. Okay. Yeah, and if you want to get an example of this, I'll just highlight is Arizona State. What they've done with online education, augmenting resident uh, education there, and an innovative concept that is inherently interdisciplinary uh, across really critical functions. It's just, it's just another model to look at. And uh, Marginal Revolution University, Hoover's own uh, Defining Ideas series, the wonderful uh, work that uh, many of our people do here. So that that's, there are ways for ideas to get out, at least until government censorship gets to us. Okay, let's shift gears. We have two foreign policy questions from the group. First from Duncan in Aberdeen, Neil, one of your people. What would be the downside to not interfering in any China attempt to regain Taiwan? Is Taiwan just a potential Franz Ferdinand moment that the world and the US simply doesn't need? It could be maximum destruction for limited benefit. Would Taiwan or the people of Taiwan ever want to rejoin China anyway? Well, why don't I go first and then uh, HR, I'm sure, will have thoughts on this. Obviously, there's a danger. It's something that I've written about and uh, HR has addressed in his, his book that you end up with a major conflict over uh, Taiwan between the United States and China. And that could be 1914 sized if it happened. Uh, on the other hand, that's not an argument for saying we should uh, simply hand Taiwan with a ribbon tied around it to Xi Jinping any more than it was an argument in 1914 for just letting the Germans have Belgium without a fight. Uh, international order cannot be based uh, on simply uh, capitulating to a, an, a hostile ad adversary. And in the case of Taiwan, it's not only uh, that the United States has a commitment uh, to help uphold the uh, de facto autonomy of Taiwan that goes back to the 1970s uh, and prevent a forcible reimposition of the control from uh, Beijing. Uh, it's also that Japan regards Taiwan as crucial to its security and the American commitment uh, to Taiwan is of a piece with the US commitment to, to Japan. So simply to abandon Taiwan would be to completely destabilize the Asia Pacific region with all kinds of unforeseeable uh, consequences. Uh, and that's why I think it's extremely important that the US commitment to Taiwan be credible. The problem in 1914 was that Britain had a commitment to Belgium, but it wasn't sufficiently credible to deter the Germans from invading. And that's the danger that we run at the moment. Uh, we have a commitment, but it's not credible. HR. Well, I think it's just to, to highlight Neil's point, just take the map and then turn the map uh, 90 degrees you know, to the left, such that Taiwan is to the north uh, instead of to the east, and you see the geostrategic importance of Taiwan. But really, I, th I think the, the the main point is that we have to be able to deter China. We being the, you know the Taiwanese primarily, but also the U.S. and their allies uh, in the region. Japan is, is critical in this connection uh, to to convince you know, to convince China they can't accomplish their objectives through the use of force. And and I think of course the primary responsibility for that is the Taiwanese the, the, is with the the Taiwanese themselves. Uh, the Taiwanese people, I think, have learned vicariously from the example of Hong Kong and how China has extended its repressive arm into Hong Kong. 
And there is a much higher degree of motivation than there was just even a few years ago to, to improve Taiwan, Taiwan's defense. And that's where I think we should spend you know, the, the, the greatest amount of our effort is helping Taiwan convince itself, convince the, the People's Liberation Army that they can accomplish their objectives of the use of force, and then also to strengthen themselves against various forms of Chinese aggression that operate below the threshold of what might elicit a concerted response, uh, military response from the United States and others. So um, I think this goes back to deterrence by denial and the primary responsibilities with the Taiwanese. I think China would make a huge mistake if they were to conclude that the United States and others in the region would not respond to brazen aggression against Taiwan. So let me, in my response, let me push you guys a little bit because so there's the there's the invasion scenario, which is is fun to think about. But the more likely scenario is the little red men, uh, like what Russia does in Ukraine, which we still let them have, and that's heating up again. Uh, the the lines in the sand that we're famous for. Um, so like what they're doing in Hong Kong, isn't the scenario slow, steady strangulation? Uh, you know, a hundred quote fishing boats unquote lashed together. A little bit of embargo. Oh, we need to inspect to make sure unlawful weapons aren't going in. Just trying to push, push, push. Not a big invasion, something that, but, uh, you know, bit by bit. And then, you know, America is, has a notoriously low attention span. Bit by bit, they get what they want. And I'll put this the hard way. Why doesn't the U.S. recognize Taiwan? Well, okay, I'll say, well, the, you know, the Chinese have been pursuing this, this sort of campaign of subversion for decades. And uh, they've, they've suffered setbacks based on, on the degree to which they've become more and more aggressive. Uh, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party's become more and more aggressive. And as I mentioned, you know, the Taiwanese people are learning vicariously from, you know, from the, you know, from the example of, of Hong Kong. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the period, uh, the, the period of greatest danger is really after, will begin after the Beijing Olympics and after the Chinese Communist Party Congress in 2022. And that's when I think, John, you're going to see a real step up in, in, in the activities that you're yeah. alluding to, including various forms of economic coercion and subversion, as well as just brazen efforts to co-opt elites with big payoffs and lucrative contracts and so forth. Uh, a lot of that, none of that will be new, but not, none of it's worked so far. In fact, it's had the opposite effect. So um, I think what will happen is when these, these actions below the threshold of military force are exhausted, then it, that's when the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese Communist Party may conclude, okay, well, maybe now it's time for an attack. So I, I don't think we want to underestimate the chances of, uh, you know, of a military action against, against Taiwan. The reason we don't recognize it, I don't think, is, is because it's not necessary to. Uh, I think that that, that that would be maybe in and of itself a provocation that, that, that isn't related to deterring um, really the, the party and allowing the Taiwanese people to control their own destiny, which is, I think, what we ought to be advocates for. So, you know, I, you know even uh, President Tsai Ing-wen and her party, they're not ready to declare independence, right? So I, I, think, I think the current policy of strategic ambiguity is fine, as long as it's backed up by really a strong deterrent capability. It's worth adding, it's not the same situation as in Hong Kong, and it's a mistake to confuse those. It's really uh, a, a completely de facto autonomous democracy. Uh, that exists in, in Taiwan, uh, nor would it be as easy uh, for the People's Republic to get uh, little red men uh, onto Taiwanese territory without amphibious action. So the, the HR is right. They, they've tried these options of, of infiltration, uh, influence operations. They haven't succeeded. And actually, if you look at polling, 
the Taiwanese feel more Taiwanese than ever and, and less Chinese in terms of their own uh, national identities. So in that in that sense, I think you could say that the, the softer options, the infiltration options have actually failed. Okay, let's move on to a related question. Brad in Pennsylvania writes, the United States won the first Cold War because every president from Truman to Reagan, in essence, followed the strategy of containment prescribed by George Kennan. To what extent should the U.S. pursue the same strategy in Cold War II against China? Neil, you want to kick that one off? Well, I've argued that we are in Cold War II, and I think we've been there since at least 2018. And part of uh, success in a Cold War begins with acknowledging that you're in it. And we're, we're still in somewhat of a denial phase, rather as the United States was in the 1940s. It took a while, really, to realize that Cold War I had begun. Containment... Uh, and there were various iterations of containment, was certainly a success, but it's not an entirely perfect analogy. It's not a strategy that necessarily works in exactly the same way, not least because uh, of the extraordinary economic interpenetration uh, of the People's Republic of China with not only the US economy, but the economy of the entire world. And that certainly wasn't a characteristic feature of the Soviet Union, which pursued autarky and had really very limited a trading partner. So I think we need to come up with something different. We can't just uh, photocopy uh, George Kennan's uh, original uh, telegram and, and essay and, and change Soviet Union to People's Republic of China. Still, it is worth rereading what Kennan said, because if you do that, you realize that the central argument is applicable. The central argument was that ultimately the seeds of the dissolution of the totalitarian regime were already sprouting within it, and that therefore you simply had to contain it because eventually those seeds would grow uh, fatally and cause the system uh, to disintegrate. That proved to be correct. I think it actually applies to any totalitarian system. So the fundamental insight of Kennan, I think, is applicable, though we'll clearly have to, to make it containment 2.0 for Cold War II. HR? I, you know, I think the analogy bears out because you know, what Neil's talking about is, is really the, this idea that, that the Soviet Union would collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. And whereas today we see a China that appears to be supremely confident uh, as it emerges from the pandemic itself, kind of ahead of the world and so forth. And it sees really the, the, the difficulties that we've encountered in our own country that other democracies have encountered. But I, I really think that that, that that apparent confidence belies a, a, a profound fear, a fear of losing the, the, the party's exclusive grip on power. And I do think that we have acknowledged that we are in a competition, that, that China is a strategic rival. You know, I had the privilege of convening the Principals Committee of the National Security Council in March of 2017. And I read an excerpt from the previous strategy of, of engagement and cooperation with China and observed that we we're about to help President Trump affect the largest shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. After the president made those th that decision to 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 uh, approve uh, the strategy uh, for competing with with China as a strategic rival, we went to work on specific strategies to do that more effectively. One was on countering Chinese economic aggression. One was declassified in January or February of of, uh, of this year, and I recommend it. It's called it was it's a strategy for the free and open Indo-Pacific. And, and it is a fundamentally sound document. It's a foundational document. And there are other strategies associated with it. To answer the, the question, yes, I think we will have a very high degree of continuity across multiple administrations because the nature of this competition, how important it is to our security, our prosperity, 
our influence in the world, I think, is readily apparent to all Americans, regardless of, of political party. And I think the greatest source of continuity in our policy will be Xi Jinping and the increasing aggressiveness of the party and, and how uh, the party is succeeding in, in offending not only our sensibilities and, and, and highlighting the danger to U.S. interests, but to the interests of all citizens across the free world. And, and, uh, and I think you'll see with Prime Minister Suga's visit uh, to Washington, uh, a high degree of, of concurrence uh, in terms of what, needs, what we need to do to compete effectively uh, with China. Uh, John, anything to add or shall we move on? Yes, no, I wanna add, cause uh, I'm, I'm the token dove on this program. <laughs> and so I have to stand up for, this is not Cold War II because it's a very different adversary in a very different situation. Uh, we're, our trade with China is bigger than ever. And I think when it comes time to end communism, the communists will sell us the rope. They'll put it on container ships and it'll be ready uh, in, in just in time. Uh, it's a, you guys mentioned it, it's a, uh, their prime motivation is fear. Their motivation is not world domination or, or whatever the Soviets had. Uh, their sphere of interest, you know, to what extent is this a U.S. Um, strategic interest? Yeah, they're, they're not behaving well in the South China Sea and, and the area, but they're not, they don't have tanks ready to roll across Poland and into France. Nobody around the world wants the China model. Xi Jinping t-shirts are nowhere near as popular as Che Guevara t-shirts were. And no matter how dumb American campuses are, we haven't even gotten ourselves uh, there. And I think one of the greatest dangers we face is the chance of whipping this up and thereby shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, a massive industrial policy to, to build things at home at 10 times the cost. Uh, of course, it has to be made with union labor and American materials. Uh, we can shoot our own economy. And one of our greatest, uh, and we're busy shooting ourselves, one of our greatest uh, strengths is openness. We should be letting Chinese people come to the US and see what the US is like. We should be letting every computer programmer and chip engineer from Taiwan into the US with a brand new H-1B visa. Uh, shutting ourselves off from China and, and the intellectual exchange is one of the worst things we could do here. So there's a great danger of shooting ourselves in the foot by turning this into, we're replaying the Soviet scenario. Well, can I just agree with John quickly? I mean, the, the most important competition is the economic co dimension of this competition, as, as well as the technological element of this competition. It is important, I think, for us to practice economic statecraft to compensate for the Chinese Communist Party's unfair advantages, the use of their mercantilist model at our expense. Uh, I, and I think you know, an example of great bipartisan support for a pretty smart approach is the Strategic Act uh, or the Strategic Competition Act uh, that we've just seen out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee with, with tremendous bipartisan support. There are elements of what John would say is industrial policy there, but I think they are necessary elements. And it will all be about implementation. We have to be, I agree with John, we should be smart about this. John, you could have made all those arguments about Germany before 1914. But the key thing was that the United Kingdom failed to deter the Germans from taking aggressive action. You say there aren't tanks lined up on the border. Actually, there are. There are full-scale military preparations in place for the invasion of Taiwan. And what we've got to get right is what the United Kingdom got wrong over 100 years ago. We've got to deter China from taking that kind of aggressive action. If we can deter them from doing what Germany did twice in the 20th century, then we can carry on enjoying the benefits uh, of trade. But of course, we cannot allow them 
uh, to tilt the playing field as they have done for years but, uh, with their mechanics. Let me just first, didn't you write the book saying that the UK shouldn't have fought the First World War? And second, <laughs> no, actually, here's my well, worry. You obviously my... haven't read it, John, because if you'd read it, you'd know that my argument was that Britain failed to deter Germany. Yes, and by no, adopting I... a conscription prior to 1914, Britain would have had an army that would have deterred the Germans. So no. there really are important lessons from British history for American policymakers. It would be calamitous to repeat the mistakes of the 20th century and fail twice to deter China in the way that Britain failed twice to deter Germany. But you also said, don't make don't make threats that you can't keep, uh, which is the danger here. Yeah, uh, so deterrence has to be serious. You have to mean it and you have to have the means to do it. And second, my worry in the industrial policy is that uh, we will do to the chip industry what the Jones Act did to the shipping industry in the name of national security. Well. Well, it's probably time to re- repeal the Jones Act for that reason. Hey, a couple, a couple <laughs> things. Hey, I, I just, I'm sorry, you're getting like the historians all excited now here. You know, <laughs> I, just a, a few things to, to recommend. First, The Pity of War, which you, re- you recommend as Neil's book, but also Michael Howard's The Continental Commitment and a great essay that Margaret Macmillan did uh, on the anniversary of the beginning of, of World War I called The Rhyme of History, which is on the Brookings website. So I, I think for those, you know, aspiring applied historians out there, those those books, I think, are analogous to the geostrategic competition uh, with China today. Okay, guys, I want to keep the show moving. We're going to keep discussing China, I think, as long as we're going to be doing the show. Uh, we received a lot of questions directed to each of you individually. Uh, so let's do a couple of those very quickly. John Cochran, let's begin with you. A question from Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Here's what Kevin wants to know. What can we do to address income inequality? Oftentimes, conservatives dismiss income inequality as a non-issue. If we assume for a moment that income inequality is undesirable, what is a conservative solution to it? Well, uh, I don't grant that it is a problem. Uh, the minute you say income inequality is a problem per se, you say we are made better off if Bill Gates is $1,000 poorer and you're $100 poorer. That just doesn't follow. Now, the inequality is... Um, I think it's a symptom of something that really is real, which is opportunity. And I think it's a, uh, the, the answer to inequality, which is really just a political buzzword for we want, uh, we want to decapitate the rich. Uh, it's, in, it's a political buzzword for him. So the answer to inequality is to say, look, there's something genuine that we both should worry about here. And that's the lack of opportunity uh, among people left out of America. Horrible public schools, crime-ridden neighborhoods, um, residential laws that make it impossible for them to move to where the good jobs are, labor laws that make it impossible for uh, sketchy people to join the workforce and, uh, and, and uh, learn how to move up in America. So I, I answer it with, let's re- if you're an honest person, let's rephrase it. What we should be worried about is opportunity and growth for everybody. The reason we don't hold fields like our great-great-grandparents is growth for everybody, not because of redistribution. All right, uh, HR, question for you from Danny in Los Angeles. Danny asks, I just turned 19 and I'm deeply worried about my generation's low self-esteem of its own country, especially on the world stage. American interventions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and Yemen have made millions of my peers critical of U.S. leadership and global affairs. How can my generation get past its cynicism and learn to lead a deeply troubled world? Yeah, I think you just should have pride. You should have pride in your country and pride in, 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 in what our country has accomplished for us uh, as, a, as a nation uh, militarily when called upon to do so, but also for the world. And of course, we've made mistakes. I mean, I think that most Americans would agree, okay, invading Iraq in 2003 was a mistake, but we should also recognize that it was only after the most devastating uh, terrorist attack in history that we invaded Afghanistan. And what did we do as a byproduct of that? We ended 
we ended five years of horrible, tyrannical rule of the Afghan people, of people who had suffered already uh, for, for decades uh, of, of war. But I think what we have to recognize is that others have agency over the future. Wars don't end when one side disengages. As G.K. Chesterton said, you know, <laughs> war may not be the best way of settling differences, but it might be the only way to ensure they're not settled for you. So I think it's, it's important for us to recognize, uh, first of all, that America makes mistakes, but, you know, but America has been a force for good in the world. And I think especially after the, you know, the, the two devastating wars of the, of the 20th century, World War I and World War II, uh, the United States was responsible for establishing a, a world order that lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And look at some specific examples of, of, of uh, the intervention in Korea in 1950. And look at the stark contrast, if you want to see one, between systems uh, <laughs> south of the 30th parallel and north of the 30th parallel. So I would just say, Daniel, study history, be skeptical about any orthodoxy that is fed to you associated with the, the new left interpretation of history or the realist school, uh, and you can have pride in your nation. But we, one of the sources of pride is we can be skeptical. And so, you know, I mean, tell your, you know, your fellow students, hey, it, it is our right to be skeptical. And many people have fought and died so that you can have that right to be skeptical and voice uh, your opinion and your assessment of, of U.S. foreign policy or, or anything really in our nation. Hey, Neil Ferguson, John in London wants to know the following. What does Scottish independence mean to Britain's position in the world, in NATO, on the U.N. Security Council, and to the special relationship with the U.S.? Well, Scotland's a small country, uh, population around 5 million. If it became an independent state, it would just become one of a whole bunch of, of small countries uh, in Europe, and it might then try to join the European Union, and and uh, and then it would be somewhere somewhere between a Baltic state and a Balkan state. I mean, we shouldn't exaggerate the importance of Scotland, but the disintegration of the United Kingdom uh, would have, I think, important consequences, and it would certainly uh, create some practical problems, as HR will confirm, uh, for NATO. Uh, so I think that's actually a, an issue that gets greatly understated in the debates, which tend to focus. Uh, on politics and economics, but uh, but actually it would be a problem, a serious problem for NATO, and it also would also be an opportunity for the usual suspects to say that the United Kingdom shouldn't be on the UN Security Council. I am a fully fledged opponent of Scottish independence, argued against it uh, for most of my adult life, and would oppose it if it were put to yet another uh, referendum. I'm hoping that won't happen. Uh, a little subplot. Uh, the seamy side of Scottish nationalism has manifested itself in a split. It's always great when the, uh, uh, the popular front of Scotland splits from the People's Liberation Front. But that's kind of what happened when Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon fell out rather publicly. Uh, and Salmon has now created a new party. So the probability has gone down a bit because I think of these internecine disputes. But you're quite right to raise that point. Uh, and maybe HR could could comment on that. Uh, I'm trying to picture where where those submarines would go if they couldn't be in Scotland. Well, Neil, I, I agree. Of course, having had the, the great privilege of serving alongside you know, the British military for many years, uh, you know, I, I think that it would be devastating to the military overall, and as you mentioned, to the nuclear deterrent associated with the submarine base and so forth. I'm also as a as a you know, as a rugby player, old rugby player, and and uh, and fan. You know, I just think of you know ind the individual rugby teams. Uh, you know, are 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 really uh, have prowess in their own right. Uh, but when the barbarians come together, you know they're tough to beat. <laughs> and uh, and that's you know that's the that's the rugby team that combines 
Scotland, uh, Wales, uh, England, um, and so so I, I, and I, Ireland. I th- and, and, Ar- and Ireland and Ireland and 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 so I, I think that you know in unity there is tremendous strength militarily and as you mentioned as well the diplomatic heft and and uh, and I believe that the UK is a force for good in the world uh, and any diminution of that would be bad for for everyone's security. Let me ask Neil on this a little more. I mean, right now, Northern Ireland is, is where the real trouble is of how are we going to implement Brexit on Northern Ireland and this, the possibility that it, it returns to internal uh, strife over that issue. Um, question one and question two, uh, perhaps the European Union's uh, stupendously successful vaccination policy is, is making uh, Brexit look a little better and joining the EU like a little bit of a less idea, or is that has that occurred to the Scots yet? Well, these were supposed to be viewers' questions, but we can always ask ourselves questions. <laughs> uh, I'll take the first one uh, second, uh, and the second one first. It's actually clear from the polling that the the experience of the past year or so has increased support for Brexit. I think that is uh, not entirely due to the very big difference between the UK's vaccine campaign and the European one. I think it's more that people saw the way the European Commission behaved uh, and it illustrated perfectly the arguments of the pro-leave uh, campaign back in 2016, that there was a centralizing bureaucratic tendency in Brussels that was also ultimately detrimental to, to people's lives. So Brexit has been in many ways vindicated by the success of the UK vaccine campaign. Northern Ireland is a bigger headache than Scotland and has been for many, many years. Uh, 200? <laughs> more than a century uh, I think it might even be true to say that, that Scotland became much less of a problem from the late 18th century. And from then on, Ireland was really the persistent problem. So it's not too surprising that the fundamental change that's been made as a result of the Brexit agreement to the border relationships, the border arrangements, uh, that was bound to cause trouble. And it was a source of considerable disquiet to me that that there ended up being uh, a decision that ultimately reinstates uh, that border and also creates an effective border in the Irish Sea. Polling shows an increasing support for the idea of a united Ireland. Uh, and, and in many ways, I think that's a probably bigger headache for London than, than the prospects of another referendum in Scotland. So watch closely. The recent very ugly scenes that we've uh, we've witnessed in Northern Ireland are a, a bad sign of the unintended consequences of Brexit. Okay, let's head back into uh, questions for all three good fellows. This question comes from Dylan in Spokane, Washington. Dylan writes, at the risk of impersonating Peter Robinson, I'd like to begin with a couple of quotes. Adam Smith in 1776. In the University of Oxford, the greater part of the public professors have for these many years given up altogether even the pretense of teaching. The second quote, F.A. Hayek in 1944, perhaps the most alarming fact is that contempt for intellectual liberty is not a thing which arises only once the totalitarian system is established, but one which can be found everywhere amongst intellectuals who have embraced a collectivist faith and who are claimed as intellectual leaders even in countries still under a liberal regime. If Smith and Hayek were correct, does this diminish current critiques of academia? Well, first, I think the Hayek quote's more applicable to our own time than the Smith quote. The late 18th century Oxford was a pretty somnolent place. Edward Gibbon, the historian, made the same comment. And all the great ideas of the Enlightenment came from elsewhere, including, it should be said, from Scotland and the universities there. Uh, but the Hayek point that totalitarianism can exist 
in an academic community without there being a totalitarian dictator imposing it, that's terribly applicable today. I've been struck uh, frequently in recent years by the extraordinary way in which some academics seem to want to live as if under a totalitarian regime. They practice denunciation of their colleagues, for example. Uh, they have an ideology which they wish to impose on the students rather than encouraging students to think for themselves. An atmosphere has been created, and this is well documented in universities in which free speech is limited uh, and people feel inhibited about speaking their minds. So the Hayek quote is very applicable. Does that mean that we've always seen this, that it's always been true? No, it's much worse than it was in Hayek's time. And I think this is something that's, that's again, measurable. The, the political skew in academia is far more pronounced. It's far more decidedly to the left than it was uh, in, in Hayek's day. And I would say that totalitarianism is far more pervasive because it's not just um, a few professors. Uh, it, it's actually also university administrators. It's not necessarily students, but university administrators who denounced J.K. Rowling after uh, an attempt to have a Harry Potter-themed uh, uh, event, which I understand happened at Stanford very recently. So I think this problem is the one that Hayek identified, but it's much worse than it was in his day. Okay, HR, John, you want to chime in? Well, maybe it's, this is a reason for optimism, right? It's not a unpre totally unprecedented uh, problem, although, as Neil says, it may be more acute. But but I think that you know, I think that if we recognize the nature of the problem, we being those who who are skeptical of of, of these orthodoxies and 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 this sort of stifling of of, of argument and discourse, uh, if, if we amplify our voices, if we don't shy away from that kind of criticism, I think we're going to strike a chord uh, with with. Uh, with, with students, uh, undergraduate and graduate students who, who will want a fundamentally different educational experience. So I, I think that this, there's reason for optimism based on the reader's question, uh, even though it might not be you know, whole, uh, completely analogous to the, to the problem we face today. And today we may be facing a, a more acute problem. The, the intolerance is stronger than it was. As Neil pointed out, the numbers are much, much stronger there. There used to be conservatives in universities, there aren't anymore. The um, bending to the will of, of this strong, shrill minority of the students is stronger than it used to. The monopoly power of universities, which we mentioned earlier, is stronger. It's harder to build a new university. And university of Chicago was created out of nothing in 1896 and did a lot of good by doing things that Harvard and Yale wouldn't do. That's much harder to do these days. Uh, so I do think, the, and it's spilling out the, the intolerance the most important part is the intolerance, not the crazy ideas, the, the intolerance for other ideas. That's spilling out into the government and corporate world uh, as an organized movement in a way that uh, did not happen earlier. Though I think our historians will tell us that trouble, much trouble always comes from universities. Right. And you know, I just want to point out, though, that others saw this coming years ago, too. Christopher Lash was running about this in the 90s when he talked about the corporate and bureaucratic structure of universities. So I, you know, I, I think that you know this isn't just suddenly upon us, right? This is something that's developed over time. Yeah, the, the rise of the administrators is something new. Okay, a question from Hayden in Orange, California. Quote, what is it going to take for our country to return to being guided by reason rather than emotion and partisanship in your areas of expertise? If we do not return, how long before America loses its title as a world superpower? Well, let me break a lance for partisanship. Sometimes uh, it's uh, a good thing. Remember, the, the, the term a partisan as a term of abuse uh, overlooks the fact that in a free society, 
that there do have to be political parties. You can't really have democracy without them. Uh, and in some ways, having a two-party system has certain advantages that I wouldn't trade for a multi-party system and proportional representation. As in court, uh, there are two sides. Uh, there's the prosecution and the defense. So partisanship isn't all bad. And sometimes it's, it's a good thing that we clearly set out the alternatives uh, whatever the issue is, uh, whether it's fiscal policy or, or national security. Uh, of course, partisanship is also a, a somewhat unseemly thing, and the Founding Fathers agonized about it almost as soon as there were parties uh, in the American system. But I think it's a mistake to wish them away and imagine that we're all going to establish some bipartisan uh, unity. That might be possible on a couple of issues, China, uh, maybe big tech, but it's never going to be possible on the majority of issues, and I don't think we should want it to be. I don't think it's a big issue as long as there's argument, real argument that allows uh, that, that allows politicians to to come to some sort of a compromise when possible on the merits of the issue. And then I think the other aspect uh, of of uh, of really a healthy polity that can transcend uh, hyperpartisanship is an educated electorate. And and I think if we can work on these two aspects of it, so that politicians. Are, are, uh, portray them so their own responsibilities or think of their own responsibilities as less performative and more formative and substantive and argumentative, and the electorate is educated about these issues, then I think we, we can recover you know, from the hyper-partisanship that we've experienced, in which those who are most vitriolic about, about issues tend to be those who are the, the least informed about those same issues. Uh -huh. I'll just add, at a superficial level, um, I think H.L. Mencken said democracy is what voters get what they ask for, good and hard. Uh, and so we will, <laughs> you know, when, when our voters demand of politicians a reason, uh, bipartisanship, sensible reform, rather than whatever the uh, cause of the day is, then, then they'll get it, so long as the voters are still able to. Uh, I think the, the thing we forget about, uh, the crucial part of American democracy is protection for the losers. It's not 5149, we wipe you out off the face of the earth. Uh, and it is in, in our system, it is the protection for the losers, things like the filibuster currently under discussion, but many other rights of the losers not to be wiped out. That's what keeps the losers from taking up arms as they do in many other countries when they lose elections. And that's what forces uh, winners to negotiate. Uh, you can't pass, you used not to be able to pass earth shattering changes to the structure on 5149. Uh, so when the losers retain some rights, then you're forced to negotiate and find common ground. And that's the structural problem that I think is, is so two, the voters don't need to want it and the system still needs to force negotiation uh, until you have a, a, a substantial majority. General McMaster, I have a question for you from Daniel in Stamford, Connecticut. He asks, can you discuss the latest sabotage on the Iran and the Taz nuclear facility allegedly orchestrated by Israel and the near-term effects? Well, Daniel, I think it's important with every action in connection with Iran to place it in context of really two fundamental elements of, of the, you know, our relationship with Iran and the competition with Iran uh, that, that, that uh, is existential from Israel's perspective. And that is the, the ideology of the revolution and the four decade long proxy war that Iran has waged against you know, the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel. It's, it's repeated pledges to wipe Israel off the map. Now, now imagine if you're Israel, right? Israeli leaders looking at, uh, at that regime gaining the most destructive weapons on earth. This is what gave rise to the Begin Doctrine that Israeli leaders will not accept uh, a hostile power having the most destructive weapons on earth. 
And if this was not an unprecedented action, uh, even in connection with it was a cyber attack or direct sabotage. And I think it's just worth noting that Israel will do everything it can to, to block Iran's path to getting the most destructive weapons on earth. And we can anticipate more of this, I, I think, uh, unless, uh, unless the Iranian regime uh, somehow abandons the weapons program that it's been pursuing. So um, it's not a surprise. I think that this is not the end, obviously, because now the Iranians will have a say in the degree of retaliation. It's also important to recognize that just in recent weeks as well, you had the Iranians attack an, an Israeli flag tanker and you had uh, strangely, uh, and unexplainedly, I guess, a, a, an Iranian tanker attacked with the same methods. So this is really a, a, a proxy war uh, that, that has been going on, that Iran initiated and perpetuated, uh, and is, Israel is going to defend itself uh, because it, it sees this as an existential threat. I heard, uh, I think it was Netanyahu referred to this as cutting the grass. Um, but I think the danger for the U.S. is focusing entirely on nuclear and, and a wink-wink deal where we will not pay too much attention to your terrorism, to your bad behavior, if you'll promise to cut back on the nukes. Um, and and I, that seems like the danger where we're headed. I'd, I'd like HR to sound off on, no, your small-scale behavior is important as well as the nuclear. Yeah, I think it's important. And you can't disconnect the two because if you relax sanctions, for example, uh, in exchange for a weak nuclear agreement, that will actually give the Iranian regime more resources to intensify its, its proxy wars. So I think you have to, as you're alluding to, John, keep these two issues connected. And I think ultimately what we want to do is adopt a policy that forces a choice, right? Forces a choice, uh, 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 forces the Iranian regime to choose to either act as a responsible nation or suffer the consequences of economic and diplomatic isolation. Of course, they're not isolated. They just signed a strategic partnership agreement with the Chinese as well. So, I mean, there, there is a very important ge geostrategic dimension to this um, competition. We talk more in a future show, I think, about it. Uh, you have, you know, for example, you have the Iranians on the north side of the Bab el-Mandeb through, operating through Houthi proxies, and you have the Chinese on the south side in Djibouti. And, and we saw what, what geostrategic advantage that can give uh, in connection with disruption of global supply chains when we saw the backup in the Suez Canal a few weeks ago. Okay, a question to Professor Ferguson from Harold in Virginia, and this is about China, so let's do our best not to get bogged down on us for 10 minutes, fellas. Uh, Harold asks, will the Chinese centrally planned export-led economy be the ultimate death knell for the Chinese Communist Party, primarily due to declining domestic consumption from an aging population and the absence of replacement-level fertility? Well, the demographics are really the, the striking uh, phenomenon of, of China's future. Uh, the working population is shrinking, uh, it is now a cliche to say they will become uh, old before they become rich. And I think it's also true that it's harder than it looks to generate a consumption-led economy if you form the habits of an economy based not only on exports, but also on fixed asset investment, uh, which has been crucial to China's uh, economic growth. I'm going back to our earlier discussion of containment and, and George Kennan of the view that, that China's structural problems are actually insuperable, uh, that the growth rate will inexorably uh, trend downwards, and that this will eat into the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And that growing weakness is what propels them into a more aggressive foreign policy. So the danger in my mind is not a kind of withering away or aging of, of China, uh, but actually the sense within the Communist Party that their only hope 
for legitimacy as the economy slows uh, is an aggressive foreign policy. And I think we see ample evidence in recent wolf warrior diplomacy that that is indeed what's happening. And that's why we should be worried about China, not that it's going to become tremendously strong and three times the size of the US, I've heard that kind of thing predicted. No, it's going to slow down and stagnate demographically because of debt dynamics. And then that's when they're at their most geopolitically dangerous. Well, I, I agree. I think they always saw it as a fleeting window of opportunity to take center stage in the world. And I think they may see that window closing more rapidly uh, and, and want to act out at a time when they feel they're in a position of, of relative advantage. So I agree with Neil's assessment. Hey, Dr. Cochran, we have a question to you from Mark from Windsor in California. He asks, is John going to admit that he was wrong about Janet Yellen somehow being moderate and responsible, or is there still some hope she still hasn't crushed? I don't, I don't like to do personalities. Uh, I've known Janet Yellen for 40 years, and uh, my, my impression of her is a, uh, a remarkably level-headed, clear-eyed person in, in a uh, you know, tough situation. Uh, I, I wrote, this is in reference to, I wrote a, a blog post as an open letter encouraging her not to go along with the current absolute craziness uh, whereby we're trying, the, um, the administration wants uh, to use financial regulation to strangle carbon under the excuse that, uh, that there's a climate risk that is a risk to the financial system. And, uh, you know, I, I simply wrote an open letter saying, look, you're, you're more stronger than you think. And you can be the, uh, the Eminoscles, you can be the, the, uh, the George Schultz in the room who says, at least I'm not going along with this, but also uh, to, to guide things in a sensible direction. Because I, I can't believe Janet really thinks that there is a climate risk to the financial system. Uh, Let's jump back to group questions. Andrew in Pennsylvania writes, the size of the U.S. government has grown significantly over the past half decade and with the pandemic significantly more so. Is there any historical precedent for governments limiting their responsibilities and eliminating ineffective bureaucracies or are governments destined, destined to grow indefinitely? Neil Ferguson, the author of Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. What do you say? Well, there was a, a German economist, Adolf Wagner, in the late 19th century who postulated the law of ever-growing state expenditures. And pretty much everything that's happened since he wrote has vindicated uh, the hypothesis. Uh, government has grown pretty much in every country uh, relative to uh, gross domestic product. And I just read a fascinating interview between Martin Wolf and Larry Summers in which Summers says, that that is indeed a desirable uh, thing. We should expect government uh, to grow uh, larger, uh, not least as aging populations require more in the way of public services. I'm of a different view. My sense is that uh, there is in fact an important need to restrain the growth of government, uh, to shrink governments that have become too large, and that in fact the tendency over the next 20 or 30 years will be the opposite because technology is going to enable us, if we can only apply it to the provision of public services, to shrink government, to reduce its cost, to make it more efficient. So I don't actually think that the law of, uh, of ever-rising state expenditures applies uh, to all of history. It, it applies to the 20th century, where governments grew enormously in their size and competence. But I don't think it's going to be true of the 21st century. And indeed, I think one of the things I learned writing Doom is that the, the nimble governments that understood how to leverage technology, like the Taiwanese government or the South Korean governments, actually performed much better than the big lumbering governments who were using 20th century bureaucracy to cope with the pandemic. 
Neil, John, anything you want to add? Excuse yeah, I, 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 I want to be the hopeful one for a change. Um, governments can reform. So for example, Sweden was very socialist in the 1970s, figured out it hadn't worked and is uh, it still has a large tax and welfare state, but they're very hard nosed about the disincentives and, and more free market than we are. Many governments reform through crises. Uh, you know, Reagan and Thatcher happened uh, after essentially a crisis of that system erupted. Around the world, and here I'm gonna tread on historians, basically when you run out of other people's money to spend, sooner or later, government retrenches. Um, in some sense, all of Eastern Europe has gone through dramatic retrenchment of government uh, around 1990. Uh, when the old system falls apart, uh, you are forced to, to retrench. Many countries have reformed their social security systems, their welfare states. Uh, why? Because they ran out of other people's money to spend. So unfortunately, I think it, it uh, takes a crisis uh, and that um, may well happen to us. Right. So what Neil was referring to was his book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. It's released, I believe, Neil, on May the 4th, and that is going to be our topic for Goodfellows that week. Uh, HR is the author of Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. I'm just plugging books left and right today. Uh, we have a question from Henri in Zurich. He asked the following, the world is moving away from using oil. How do you see this energy transition changing the economics and geopolitics of the world? What countries do you see rising and falling in importance? Well, we're going to be relying on fossil fuels for quite some time. So I think it's very important for us to to really manage the transition from fossil fuels to what comes next, which is a range of, of, of different, uh, different energy producing capabilities associated with re renewables, obviously next generation nuclear, maybe hydrogen power and so forth and combinations, right? I mean, one of the most potent mixes for electricity generation will be maybe hydrogen power next to one of these next generation nuclear plants to provide the energy necessary for that hydrogen uh, energy process. But I, I think what's what's really important is we don't want to trade the old dependency on oil from the Middle East, now that we are energy independent in the U.S., for a new form of dependency on, on renewables and the components of renewables. You, you might have seen you know, in recent weeks more and more reporting now about the degree to which China has gotten a lock on on, uh, on rare earth metals, which are very important uh, for, you know, for, for next generation automobiles, for example, and electric automobiles, which use five times more rare earths than an internal combustion engine. And then also batteries and, and, and lithium ion batteries and the battery manufacturing process. So I think it'll be really important to take a look at the effect on supply chains by the transition to new forms of energy. And then I think what we ought to do in the near term is prioritize conversion away from coal and to natural gas as a bridge. And that is, of course, the, 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 the transition in the United States that led to the, the greatest ever reduction in man-made greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions um, in, in history. So, you know, I think that there are, that there are a range of solutions av available. I'm optimistic about the, the amount of solutions and, and the combination that's available. But I don't think that we're taking a holistic view of this transition. And we need to be much more effective at putting a, a strategy together. Uh, and, and not create dependencies that will have big security implications. Huh? I, I want to disagree with my friend HR on the words manage the transition. How about allow the transition to happen instead of managing it, which is the current catastrophe. Even on rare earths, why are there no rare earth mines and processing uh, capacity in the United States? Try getting the environmental permits for a rare earth. We got plenty of rare earths, uh, but we just, it's very dirty project to do. Um, we're shooting ourselves in the foot there. You know, if, if we were stop, if we stop trying to manage the transition and simply put in a straightforward carbon tax, go for it, guys. Uh, ingenuity, inventiveness, and and uh, and a good transition would happen. But the question was about economics. 
And I think we need to remember the energy intensity of the US economy has gone down tremendously and continues to go down. Res natural resources are not, this isn't the 19th century, are not tremendous amounts of wealth. Yeah, the price of oil goes down, it's gonna be bad for Russia and Saudi Arabia, but these are two bit countries uh, anyway on, on the global GDP side. Most of our economy is services these days, which is just not that energy intensive. So there's a, there's a chance here to really screw things up by too much management. Uh, there's an ability, we didn't need management to transfer from horses to cars. Uh, we don't need management to do this one uh, either. Um, we need to allow it to happen, relying mostly on, on freedom of things like nuclear, which are now currently not in the management plan. You're not allowed to say inside the beltway that we're, we're nuclear. Uh, so I think that transition can happen quickly if we allow it to happen. Uh, and uh, remember, energy is just not that big a part of the US economy. Neil, do you want to break the tie? No. I don't think I, we just read that question. Okay, final question then, gentlemen, since we're up against the clock here, uh, since we have viewers, our viewers are also readers. Clayton from Des Moines, Iowa asks, what books are you reading? What books do you recommend? Let me recommend once again, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, out on May the 4th, you can pre-order it right now, and Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. But the three of you, what books are you currently reading? What books do you recommend? I've just finished Philip Zelikow's uh, wonderful book, The Road Less Traveled about Woodrow Wilson's failed attempt to end the First World War in 1916. I'm also in deep, deep into the novels of, uh, of Walter Scott, uh, which, by the way, remind you what Scotland looked like when it was an independent country, messy. Uh, so, yes, I like to combine nonfiction and fiction on my, on my reading stand, and, uh, and Zellico and Scott are my uh, authors of the moment. HR, what books are you listening to when you're out paddleboarding? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm finishing uh, Black Wave, which is about the competition between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. I'm, I'm rereading uh, The Revolt of the Elites by Christopher Lash, which I mentioned a little bit a little bit earlier, which was, I think, incredibly prescient about the, the, the problems that we're facing uh, today. Uh, I'm, I'm reading uh, Belton's book on, on Putin's people. Yeah, just a, ra a range of books and, and trying to... Uh, you know, trying to keep keep uh, keep abreast of as much as I can, so I can make you know, an occasional pithy remark on Goodfellas. John Cochran, I'm giving you the final word. <laughs> oh, great! Uh, no, of course, uh, Doom and Battlegrounds, especially HR, said something very deep on the Barry Weiss show that um, you never read about American battlefield success, and and the opening chapter on how uh, HR in a tank and how you actually fight a uh, tank, tank battle. It's just sort of stuff that Americans don't know anything about. So I thought that was great. I'll recommend two books that I happen to have read last year. Um, George Will's Conservative Sensibility, I thought was the best piece of political philosophy that I've read since uh, P.G. O'Rourke's Parliament of Horrors, which I also recommend, <laughs> an ancient classic. And not because it's all right, but because um, it kind of it masterfully says where we are and where I can find holes in it. I think there's uh, things to think about. I also read last year Stephanie Kelton's Deficit Myth, the uh, uh, modern monetary theory, uh, um, defining piece of monetary, monetary theory. And I wrote a review of it. But uh, I think it's important to read uh, what's going on on the other side. And uh, at least you can know exactly what there isn't in there. <laughs> Okay, well, gentlemen, that's it for this week's uh, mailbag. Uh, thank you for playing along with me. I'd really like to thank you, our viewers, for sending in the questions. They were just smart, they were thoughtful, and again, just your kind sentiments about the show. We really, we really value your your, your thoughts. Uh, keep sending the your uh, questions, by the way. We'll 
probably add a few questions on shows here and then we'll do another mailbag down the road. Remind you once again how to do this. Go to our website, which is hoover.org forward slash ask goodfellows. Let me repeat that for you. Hoover.org forward slash ask goodfellows. Ask a question. We'll try to get in on the show. So that's it for this week. On the behalf of the Hoover Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, thanks for watching. By all means, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.